At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Well, I am glad that you are here today. We actually have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I had asked the worship team if they would be willing to uh, maybe be a little bit more brief so that we could spend more time in the Word. Uh, The worship of Jesus is always um, central to what we do as we gather, expressing our appreciation and gratitude to Him. But all of it is informed by the Word of God, by the Scriptures. And so uh, today I got a passage that I think will take a little bit more time, and, uh, and I, and I want to just be able to walk through it together. A little bit about how we teach the Bible here uh, at Woodside, and I'll give some context to what I'm about to sh- say to you. Occasionally I get a letter from somebody or an email or a lovely phone call saying, I don't like the topic you preached on today. Um, I feel like you targeted me or whatever the case may be. And I always want to be sensitive to that because as a pastor, I'm always growing in my ability to say things with grace and truth. But what I won't apologize for is the way we teach the Bible. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, What you won't hear here at Woodside typically is us uh, picking a topic and say, hey, we're going to spend the next 10 weeks on love or forgiveness or humility. Nothing wrong with, uh, with doing that if done properly, but there are some risks. And one of the risks of teaching that way is it becomes very convenient and very tempting to skip tough passages of Scripture, those awkward verses, those ones that are somewhat complex or even controversial. But the way we've chosen to teach the Bible is when as often as possible, as much as possible, to teach through entire books, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so that we're not picking the topic the text is. So today, as we travel through, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's going to be some stuff that comes up that I didn't pick because I didn't write the letter. But I'm teaching through the Word of God so that all of us, without bias, can say, Lord, your Word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our past. How many thank God for the truth of His Word? Amen? So please, if you're going to be upset um, uh, and write me an email, which I love to read, I I just want to say to you that I love you, but I love you enough to teach you the truth of God's Word. Amen? Amen. All right. With that being said, I want to go into a very important passage today that I believe, when properly understood, um, does more to teach us 
the, about what type of people we ought to be than just about any other text that we have read thus far in, in this study. Paul is writing to his son Timothy, uh, son in the faith. He has left Timothy in this ancient city called Ephesus. Ephesus was an affluent city, a merchant city, but it was also religiously a pagan city. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later, but the uh, major religion of that day was the worship of a goddess named uh, Diana in the Greek, Artemis. There's still uh, temples to her today. Uh, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. You can still buy these little crafts to the goddess Diana because it's a part of their cultural history. But this was the dominant religion of their day at that time. And so Paul is writing to Timothy in this context about the type of uh, people Christians ought to be. Now, I want you to look at um, this, this verse with me in chapter 3, chapter 3, real quickly, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It sets the tone for what Paul is seeking to accomplish here. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul is saying to Timothy, man, I love you guys. I want to see you. I hope to journey to you. How many have travel plans for 2023? How many have some places you want to go, right? So Paul had his plans. I want to come visit with you. I want to come see you. But if I don't, I know you need instruction for what the church should look like, how we ought to behave in the church. And, and so I want to write you because what Paul knew is that the gospel changes our beliefs or our doctrines, but it also changes our behavior as well. And so what, what Paul knows is that how we, or what we believe impacts how we behave. And so he wants Timothy to know the truth so that we can live in a way that honors God and is a blessing to the people around us. Now, before I read the text, I just want to let you know a few truths we're going to encounter today as we go through verses 8 through 15 of chapter 2. First thing, and you can jot some of these things down. We're going to learn today that leadership is about service, not about status. You know, in our world and in our culture, we think of leadership as dominance, domineering, status, elitism. But Jesus flips that whole thing on its head when he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Peter, writing to the elders of the church as a fellow elder in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, says, don't lead in a domineering way. So what is leadership? It is serving on Christ's behalf, on God's behalf, those that you have been given stewardship responsibility to. Amen? Secondly, we're going to learn that the, that the Bible is neither misogynistic or feministic. I just used two big words there. How many know what I mean when I say misogyny? All right? Four of you, great, this is going to go well. <laughs> misogyny means the esteeming of men at the expense of women. So to be misogynistic is to say men rock and women are inferior. The Bible doesn't do that. Nor is it feministic, meaning to esteem women at the expense of men. To say women rock, but men are stupid. 
No, we might be, but that's not what the Bible <laughs> says about the uh, way we should relate or see one another, right? The Bible says, honor, children, honor your father and your mother, not making one inferior or superior to the other, but both being equal in value and worth and in esteem, amen? But the other thing we're about to learn is that equalness does not mean identicalness. Now, I think that is a word. I think identicalness is a word. I'm 68% sure. But there's 32% of me that thinks I just made up a word. Either way, I think you get what I'm getting at. That just because we're equal doesn't mean we're interchangeable. And we live in a culture that teaches us that we're just interchangeable parts, that me and my wife, for example, don't bring anything unique to the party. Men and women are not unique in any way. And we are unique in a lot of ways. You, you can't remove me from my family and just have two of my wife and think you don't lose something. And neither can you remove my wife from my family and just have two of me and think you don't lose something. We both uniquely bring something beautiful to the family. Amen? Which leads me to the last thing we're going to see today, then we're going to read the text, and that is that Scripture should be the primary source for how we discover and define our identity, not culture. So as you're looking to uh, form your identity, you get your identity from Scripture, not from the culture that is so often misinformed. Now, with that being said, let's, let's go to uh, Paul's writing in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's writing in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, as we go there, I'm going to set the context really quickly. Let me set the context really quickly. One of the things that I love to do as a parent, my wife does this really well as, as well, uh, for our younger children or our children when they are young is we love to read to them, right? How many parents love reading to their kids? All right? So we love reading to our children. So we love when we come across books that are really uh, compelling and creative. And such was the case recently. I came across a book entitled, and you may want to write this down if you have younger children, God Made Boys and Girls, Helping Children Understand the Gift of Gender. God Made Boys and Girls, Helping Children Understand the Gift of Gender by Marty Machowski. It's a, it's a really, really good book. It's a children's book. And what I love about it is that it takes on one of the hot topics of our day, but it helps kids to see this through a gospel lens. Maybe you would agree that over the last couple of decades, there have been countless articles written on gender, gender identity, gender stereotypes. And questions have abound. Questions like, what does it mean to be a man? And how should men behave? What does it mean to be a woman? And how should women behave? And how should men and women relate to one another? And so often these questions are answered culturally instead of looking through the context of Scripture and looking to the teachings of Christ. 
And so if you would have asked this question a, a couple generations ago, the model of manhood in America would have been somebody like John Wayne. How many know what I'm talking about when I say John Wayne, when I reference John Wayne? Now, if you raise your hand, I know how old you are. You don't need to tell me. I already know how old you are. But, but if you don't know John Wayne, follow along. It just means you're too young, but you'll get this in a moment. But John Wayne was an actor, and he was the, the picture that many embraced of manhood. He was macho. He was strong. He was rough. He was a little bit brutish, right? And this, this, was, this was John Wayne. And then the picture of a woman generations ago would have been like Barbie, Barbie Dow. That would have been like the, the image of, of womanhood. And so then subsequent generations came, younger generations, and they said, I reject those images because there's so much more to manhood than just John Wayne and what we modern day call toxic masculinity or this masculinity known only for aggression, anger, or lust, or dominance. And then they looked at Barbie and they said, no, there's so much more to womanhood than just Barbie. And uh, that Barbie image contributed to the negative stereotype that women are all style and no substance, all externality, no, no internal uh, depth. And so they rejected those. And, and I agree with them. I think those are fine to reject. But here's the problem. We created a, a, a greater uh, problem because while rejecting those, we rejected any gender uh, norms, any gender distinctions, and now we're totally confused. We can't even answer what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? So that's the moment that we're in right now. And so where do we go when we're confused about anything? Well, the Bible just, the scripture we just read, said the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth, the pillar and foundation of truth. So if you want to go on a journey of truth about anything, any topic, including gender, gender stereotypes, gender identity, look to the Word of God, and that's where you will find truth. Now, I want to give you an example of this. I want to show you a video clip real quickly of an interview that I recently did that's going to be airing this Tuesday on The Link, which is uh, a, a program that we release on our social media platforms every Tuesday. I interviewed a friend, Laura Perry Smaltz. She was born a woman. She went through uh, a process of cultural confusion, sexual confusion. She went through the whole process of uh, 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 transitioning to a man, lived as a man for years, came to Christ, met Christ, and then went back to being a woman. Her story is so incredible, but I want you just to see this clip because I know a lot of us are processing the current moment, looking at culture, thinking about these questions. Watch this. What was that process like, both uh, psychologically as well as physically? Yeah, I was actually surprised how easy it was at first because I, I, I looked up in Google. I, I'd never even heard of transgender, and this was 2007. I mean, this has changed so radically since then. But I, um, I found this support group of people that felt like I did. And within the first meeting, you know, the first five minutes, they're like, oh, you are definitely transgender. It's like, I knew it. I knew this was me. And I was worried I would never look like a man because I didn't know how to transition. They said, oh, don't worry about it. After a year or so of taking hormones, no one will ever know you were a girl. 
And that's what I'd wanted to hear all my life. I was like, and so at that point, I really bought into this wholeheartedly. I didn't want any other opinion. I was, I was in so much pain over being a woman because the, the sexual sin I had gotten into led to so much brokenness and just feeling like I had absolutely no worth or value. So there was no ounce of me that wanted to be female ever again. So the fact that they were telling me that I could become a man and erase the existence of Laura and reinvent myself was just everything I ever wanted to hear. So this Tuesday at 6 p.m. across all of our social media platforms, you can see the full length of that conversation. But I play that just to share with you, there's so much at stake when we're processing through these big questions in the vacuum of a culture that's confused instead of being informed by the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. How many thank God for his word, amen? So I'm going to read the text and then you're going to uh, realize why I'm thankful that we are praying community after you hear these words. Verses 8 through 15, Paul starts in verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman, for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she should, rather she is, rather, to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now do you see why we pray? Amen. I want you to stay with me because we're going to walk through this text and as always we're going to look at it through the lens of scripture and ask ourselves, what is Paul saying about us? But I don't want you to check out um, uh, of what we're about to talk about until you have heard the, the word of God. Like so many people are rejecting the Christian faith and haven't really given it a fair hearing. So let's go through the word of God and let's see what Paul is saying and then try to settle our hearts on what Paul is wanting us to understand. Now the key question that Paul is taking up here is what should Christian men and women be known for? Now that the gospel has come to us, what type of people ought we to be? What should we be known for? And he gives two answers to that. First, he turns towards men. I got about eight pages of notes, but I promise you, I'm only going to keep you till dinner. First, he goes to men. In verse number eight, and that was a joke, but verse number eight says this, I desire that men in every place, I'm sorry, I desire rather that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So his first priority was to start with, with men 
And he says to these men in Ephesus who were apparently known for their anger and aggression and quarreling, how do we know that that's what they were known for? It's because that's what he addresses. If they were known for something else, he would have addressed that. But he addresses this anger, this tendency towards anger and quarreling. He is saying, you are not to be known for that now that the gospel has come to you. Now, the word that's used in the Greek for anger is the word orge, or where we get the word orgy from. It is unholy passions mixed with violent emotions. And this, unfortunately, is the culture that we currently live in as well. Though there's 2,000 years between this writing, approximately, and where we live today, what is amazing to me is we still live in a time where most men are cultural prisoners to this stereotype that we're only allowed to express two emotions. We are told as men, you don't cry because men don't cry. You're not to be nervous. That's the woman's job. You're only allowed to express aggression through competitiveness or hypersexuality through conquest. And our culture perversely reinforces that from the time that we are boys to the time that we're teenagers to the time that we're men. And this is not unique to Western American culture. This is apparently what was happening in Ephesus as well. And what Paul is mostly concerned with is men rejecting this. I put in my notes as I was preparing for this message, far too many men today have bought into the lie that the only emotions we are allowed to show are aggression and lust. Like animals, we are, we are taught to follow our unholy passions no matter where they may lead. We are perversely rewarded for our competitiveness and our hypersexuality. This has produced a society that conditions men toward disunity, violence, covenant breaking, and the exploitation of women. It destroys families and churches and robs men of their God-given calling in Christ. Paul strongly condemns this behavior marked by anger and quarreling in the church. He is saying, this is what men may be known for in the culture, but now that the gospel has come to you, you are to be known differently. Instead of anger, now you should be lifting up holy hands. Hands that are dedicated to God and, and, and hands that are representative of all the members of your body that you've submitted to God. You should be known as men of spiritual passion, not quarreling, not unchecked, unholy passions, but men who have submitted themselves to God and said, Lord, have all the members of my body. I want to be used by you so that I can honor you and be a blessing to those that you have called me to serve and do life with. How many want to be that type of man? How many want to be that type of man? Now, I got to be careful here because what I don't want to teach is moralism, and that's different than the gospel. Moralism, and the worst thing I can do to you, this would be a crime for me to do this to you, is to say, go out and be nice and be kind and generous and self-controlled and uh, caring and uh, faithful. Go out and do that in your own willpower. 
Well, you can't do it in your own willpower. How many times have one of us said, man, I want to do right, I want to live right, and then find ourselves falling short? But what if there was an infinite power source for you to tap into? What if there was a person that when you were weak, he was strong? What if there was someone who lived on the inside of you, empowering you each day to live as a Christian man in service? to Christ. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, the good news is, and some of you get it, you have such a power source. You have such a person living inside of you. That is the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul calls men to lift up holy hands in prayer. That we as men every day have to hit our knees and say, Lord, if you don't give me strength, I can't do it. If you don't, um, Lord, empower me to be the husband, father, son, brother, I'm going to live as a man known by anger and quarreling, known for my lusts and my passions. Let me just give this clarion call to all the men in the church. You don't have to live that way. Christ has come. Freedom has come. We can now be men who are known for holiness and not unholiness. We can live unto God as covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. We don't have to destroy lives. We can heal lives through the power of Jesus because the Spirit lives on the inside of us. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel, that I am totally dependent upon Christ and his work effectual through me. And that's why I seek him in prayer. Paul understands The men who live this way will destroy the church. Again, going back to my notes, Paul was wise enough to know that no church with men who were known for their anger and quarreling would be able to survive, let alone thrive. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, wrote a book on leadership back in 1993 where he talks about the ways to destroy the church. And uh, he, he says this, and this is one of his most Um, a famous quote, the ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. He goes on to name them. Some of them factionalism or divisions. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eye off of the cross and letting other more peripheral matters uh, uh, downgrade the, or or dominate rather, the agenda will do it. Admittedly, a little bit slower than heresy, but ultimately it will destroy the church. But he concludes by saying this, entertaining men to death but never fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love will build up an assembly of religious people, but it will ultimately destroy the church of the living God. Friends, we're not here just to be entertained. We are here to foster what it means to be men who are lifting up holy hands Blessing the people around us. You know, you often hear the church talk to women about uh, they should submit, submit, submit. What we don't do enough time, uh, spend enough time, is talking about the type of leadership that we as men need to exhibit in order for a woman to feel safe enough to entrust us with her heart. If we as men embrace 
what Christ has called us to, and that is a leadership that is marked not by status, but by service, not by unbridled, unholy passions, but by holiness, not by anger or quarreling, but by blessing and love. How many know we will bless the world? How many believe that? Amen? So Paul is not saying to men that we should not be strong or protectors. He is saying to men that while we are protectors, we are also called to be priests and pastors as well. So why address men first? Well, Tony Evans says this, he addresses the men first because they are called to take the lead. You are called to leadership, men, and calling heaven down to earth. Men are called to be leaders in their homes and in their churches. And there's no more important way to lead among the people of God than by praying for divine intervention. He goes on to say, Paul knows that if men's attitudes are conducive to acceptable prayer, Timothy's pastoral leadership has hope of succeeding. In other words, the church can't succeed, thrive, or move forward if we don't have men who are known for their spiritual passions. So what should you be known for, men? What should we be known for as men? We should be known for our spiritual passions. We should be known for worship. You know, so often, again, these things that are often feminized, are things that men are called to. So often we see uh, or, or are told that worship is for women or that prayer is for women. But can I just announce that real men worship Jesus? Can I announce that? That real men pray, that real men study the word of God and the type of leadership that we're called to exercise is not a dominance or domineering type of leadership. Peter forgives that, uh, forbids that, Jesus forbids that, but it is a servanthood type of leadership like Christ, who came to serve, not to be served, to shepherd, nurture, and care. If we show this type of leadership under the power of the Spirit, we will see our families and our churches thrive. Amen? I got some amen from the ladies, um, and I'm glad you got all of those amens out. That was great, because now we're about to talk to you. And so then he goes in verse number nine, and he says, okay, men, in verse eight, you're supposed to be known for your spiritual passions, but then in verse number nine, look at what he says. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So what is he talking about here? First off, I don't want you to feel bad if your hair is braided or if you got some gold on or some pearls because Paul is talking about something much bigger, much deeper. So by starting this verse off with the word likewise, he is connecting what he's about to say with what he just said. And what did he just say? Continuing on the motif of prayer that started this uh, chapter, this rejection of a radical independence apart from God in exchange for a deep dependence on God through his word in prayer and trust and faith in Christ, he tells men to reject cultural stereotypes 
and live for Christ. And now he is saying, likewise, women, I want you to reject the cultural stereotypes that so often define you. What are those cultural stereotypes? And then he listed this whole thought of being women who are defined by style over substance, by charm over character, by externals more than internals. He is saying, women, I no longer want the world to look at you as just a trophy wife or somebody's pretty girlfriend. I want you to be known for rich gospel substance. Now that the gospel has come to you, you should be known as a woman who has so much substance internally that it evidences itself through good works and not just minor good works, but these massive good works that are transforming the lives of those that you care for, those that are entrusted to you. You should be imparting and having such gospel fruitfulness that people know you not for your braided hair, not for your clothes. They should know you for the substance you have on the inside. Now, he is not calling women to take a vow of poverty. He is not telling you to invest your energy in denying your physical beauty. What he is saying is that that should not be the primary thing that defines you. The primary thing that defines you is that you're a woman of the gospel. You're a woman of God that is bearing such great fruit for Christ that you're known for that. Amen? Again, my question to you and to me is what are we known for? As a man, am I known for my spiritual passion or am I known for my lust and my anger? As a woman, are you known only for your physical beauty or your external style, closet full of clothes but don't know a verse in the Bible? Credit card fully charged up from shopping? but not discipling anybody? Trips to the mall, but not to the mission field? What are you known for? And what Paul says is that you should be known for, man, look at the good work she's producing. Look at how God is using her. Look at at how she is impacting people. Look at the lives she's touching. Look at how she's investing the gospel in her children. Look at how she's uh, helping other women to grow. Look, Look at how God is just using her to encourage and bless people. Again, it's a high bar. I'm not calling you to moralism. I'm not saying you can do this apart from the help of the Spirit, but I am helping you to redefine what it means to be a woman. So how do you do this? How do you become a woman of gospel substance? Verse number 11 starts with these words. The only way you can do it, let a woman learn. She has to learn the gospel. It's in, this word here, manthano in the Greek, is, is, is an invitation to discipleship. It is an invitation to be a learner of the gospel with full discipleship status. And friends, I will tell you now, this is so radical to the first century because women weren't invited to be disciples primarily. They weren't invited primarily to be at the table of learning 
the gospel, men would crowd them out as if to say that the will of God could be accomplished just through one gender, but not the other. But let me establish what the Bible says. We need men who are learning the word of God, but we need women who are learning the word of God as well so that both can have enough gospel substance to bear fruit that will change the world for Jesus. Amen? This is why at this church, we are committed to producing the best Bible studies and trainings we can for both men and women so that we can both mature in Christ and go out and fulfill God's purpose and call and at all age levels as well for our kids, our students, Wake, Oasis, so that we can get all of our young adults to collect. We want to get all of us grounded in the Word of God so much that is overflowing in fruitfulness for both men and women. Let her learn. How many remember Luke chapter 10, the story of Martha and Mary? How many remember that, right? So Martha opens up her home. She's a homeowner. She opens up her home for Jesus to come, and he brings his disciples, and she's uh, preparing a meal for them, cleaning the house, getting all the stuff ready by way of hospitality, but she has a sister named Mary, and when Jesus comes in and he starts teaching, Mary goes and sits at his feet like his disciples were, and so she can learn the word of God, and Martha, pretty indignant and annoyed, goes to Jesus in Luke 10 and says, aren't you going to rebuke her or correct her, she should be helping me with the hospitality. And what is Jesus' response in verse number 42 of Luke 10? He says, Mary has chosen the better thing and it will not be taken from her. In other words, as beautiful as hospitality is, as beautiful as digging wells are, as beautiful as rescuing babies are, as beautiful as helping to go and serve the, 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 the poor of the world is, if it's not informed by the word of God, it is dead works. It won't produce spiritual life. He is not trying to create a group of do-gooders apart from an eternal understanding of who Christ is. It is Christ that informs all of our good works that brings about eternal life. And so Mary was right to say, teach me your word. And Jesus says, I'm not going to rob her of that. Women are invited to the table of discipleship too. And they are to learn and they are to grow. Now, then he talks about the attitude. He says, this is the attitude you have if you are a disciple, if you're a learner, women, it should be quietly with all submissiveness. A serious attitude that as you're approaching the word of God, it is serious. It is not flippantly. It is not, well, here goes another sermon again. It is, I want to know the gospel. I want to know the word of God. And I'm going to submit to whatever it says to me, submission is a four-letter word. It is a hard word, no matter if you're a man or a woman. But that's the attitude that, that proves that we are followers of Christ. You can say all you want, that you are a follower of Jesus, but where the rubber meets the road is when the word asks you to do something that your flesh doesn't want to do. And then you prove if Jesus Christ is really your Lord, 
And so by encouraging women to take this serious attitude of quiet submissiveness, what he is saying is that God is giving you spiritual authority, authorities in your life. God is giving you spiritual authorities in your life, namely your pastor or your elders who is teaching you the word of God, or if you're married, your husband who hopefully has enough of the gospel to be able to impart in you as well. Submit yourself to that. Submit yourself to your leaders. Submit yourself to the gospel in a way that you are saying that whatever the gospel says, I will do. How many approach the word that way? That whatever it says, I will do. Anybody approach the word that way? I pray that you will. I pray that you would approach the word with that level of seriousness. Paul expects for men to exercise leadership, in particular in the office of elder pastor, But again, that doesn't mean that you're inferior if you're not an elder pastor. There are a lot of men that are in here that aren't called to be elder pastor, but it doesn't make you a uh, uh, second-rate citizen in the kingdom of God. It just means that there are offices of service that some are called to that require of them more of the laying down of their lives on behalf of the church. But it doesn't mean inferiority. Paul expects for women to be empowered to go out and bear much fruit. He is empowering women to be disciples of Jesus Christ. The evidence is their discipleship through good works. Amen? But then he anticipates what naturally happens when you begin to empower women in any way, this fear now of feminism taking over. And so he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What is Paul talking about here? He is talking about the consequences to humanity and to the church if women don't learn and take the gospel seriously. And he takes us back to the fall of Genesis 3 where Eve, not knowing or receiving the word of God, I shouldn't say not knowing, but not receiving and obeying the word of God, transgresses against God and brings the fall and the judgment on the fall to humanity Uh, Adam being culpable too, their sin produces all types of pain and problems for us because of a rejection of the word of God. And he is saying that women need to submit themselves to the word of God so that this does not happen. She needs to be a learner so that this does not happen. And oh, by the way, I'm not calling women to take on a domineering personality by which men then are treated or subjugated in an inferior way. This is why I say the Bible is neither misogynistic or feministic. Let me explain. Though Paul references Adam, meaning that this is not a culturally imprisoned text, this is one that spans time and cultures, he is not ignorant of the culture either that Timothy is living in. And as I said earlier, Timothy is living in a pagan city where the dominant religion is to the goddess Artemis or Diana and it's run by a female priestess cult 
And the fear would be, as you empower women, are we trying to duplicate that? And Paul says, no, we're not duplicating that. We are creating an environment in which women are, are empowered, but not at the expense of men calling them to simply lay down their leadership, but men and women serving God, men exercising spiritual leadership in the home and in the church, but women taking discipleship seriously enough to produce gospel fruit. Everybody with me? And if you're not, this is recorded. You can hit rewind. And then he lands the plane in verse number 15, what some call the funnest text in the whole passage. Verse number 15. I say that tongue in cheek. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So what is he talking about here? Are women saved, as we understand salvation, through having children? And the answer is, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not establishing a new means by way salvation comes. Salvation is always by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Amen? That is the means of salvation. It is always faith, not works. And there's a number of interpretations on this passage. Because of time, I want to tell you where I landed on this and why I think I have strong ground to interpret it this way. But, but I want to just make sure that I'm also paying close attention to single women or women who are barren, not having uh, children, that uh, somehow uh, this text maybe has been mistaught, causing you to feel inferior to women who are having children or causing women in general to feel like uh, having children is the only means of value that you bring to the table. Paul is not saying that. As a matter of fact, um, I humbly submit that I think Paul is saying something different. And for this, I reference Henry Alford, who's a New Testament scholar from the 19th century. He says this, that being saved through something does not have to mean being saved by it, um, but, uh, but means being saved, but may mean being saved through it as through a danger. He makes note that Paul does combine this wording of being saved through something in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 13. Now let me reference it. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, uh, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. What Paul is saying here is that women will be saved through childbearing, meaning she will be saved not by means of childbearing, but in spite of the all-consuming pain of the fall that comes through childbearing. In other words, the fall will not be powerful enough to keep women of faith who have trusted in Christ from salvation, but they will be saved if they put their trust in Christ in spite of the pains of childbearing or the pains of the fall. What Paul is saying is that the fall, 
evidenced to us through a myriad of pains and sufferings can cause us to feel so separated uh, from God that redemption seems impossible. But he is saying to women here that in spite of that pain, if you put your faith in Christ, which is evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit, notice love and holiness and self-control that you too can be saved and redeemed and be a woman of gospel substance that is known for her good works and is changing the world for Christ. And men, we too who have put our faith in Jesus can be known not for anger or quarreling, but for our spiritual passions. And we too can advance the mission of the gospel and lead others to Christ, blessing our church, our families, and the world for Jesus. How many want to be that type of man? How many want to be that type of woman? Amen? I want to invite you to stand with me all over the church. I appreciate your patience in receiving the Word of God. And I hope that this, this lesson helps us to understand this important passage. So what is Paul helping us to know? Is that we need to reject cultural stereotypes. I don't know how the world defines you. I don't know how your family defines you. I don't know how you define you apart from Jesus. But now that the gospel has come to you as a man, be known for gospel passion, prayer, holy hands. As a woman, be known for gospel substance, godliness, and good works. And if we live this way, empowered by the Spirit in our culture, we change for Christ and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the promise of Scripture. We pray that today that you would help us to live this way. And Lord, there may be men and women that are in here that are processing, even wrestling with your word. And I pray that ultimately all of us as a believing community would submit ourselves to the scriptures. I pray for the men who are called to be elders in this church that you would bless us to lead, not out of status or domination, but out of service. And I pray for the women of this church that they would be known for more than just their physical beauty, but they would be known for their internal substance. If there are women and men who don't know you, may today be the day of salvation. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.